members of a constitutional republic have the right to vote. And we should vote. And we should vote in ways that reflect our faith. We should vote in ways recognizing that God is sovereign. And he's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over kings and rulers and presidents and Congress people and all of the different offices that you'll cast a vote for and that I will cast a vote for. And he is working always. And sometimes that working is in judgment and sometimes that working is in blessing and most of the time it is a mixture of both. This is one of the beautiful things about Isaiah. As we've gone through Isaiah, we've reminded ourselves over and over that God is always working and there is a constant tension in the message of judgment and hope, judgment and blessing. And God works that way through history. So as we go and cast a vote and we vote for things that match up with scripture, we vote for people that match up with scripture, whether they're ordinances that you're voting on or offices that you're voting to put a person in. But it's very easy to lose our focus, and while we're voting, and while we're working and acting in a world that is crumbling around us, to lose hope. It's very easy to get caught up in what's going on around us and think that there is nothing going on but evil. It's very easy to get caught up and forget that God is sovereign, and he is Lord over all. We're not in some vacuum here where the United States of America doesn't have a lord over our government. And yet we act and live that way sometimes. And in the past, there have been people who have tried not just to exercise their right to vote or to exercise their right to run for an office to make a difference. We want that. It'd be great if one of the children sitting in our room right now, should the Lord Terry become president of the United States. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Have them see them growing up in a family that loves the Lord and training them and see them saved and and God is working them for such a time as this. We would love that. But there have been times in the past where sometimes Christians, instead of just exercising those rights and keeping, keeping their focus on Christ, have tried to gain seats of power at the table. And it hasn't gone very well because the government is not our seat of power. Christ is our seat of power. So in the midst of this, and I'm not just saying this as an introduction to a sermon because we have an election coming. It's part of our text that God has given us the Sunday before we have an election coming. Isn't he wonderful to us? Because God rules over the nations. He even rules over the nations that look a mess like ours does today. Like Egypt did a long time ago. Like Judah did a long time ago. So when we're participating in this right, this annual transfer of power that usually in our history has been done peacefully in such a way that sets us apart from many other kinds of nations, we remember that the Lord reigns. And he reigns over that vote and that election the same way he reigned over hanging chads and Y2K and every other thing we thought was going to overthrow the world. God overthrows worlds. God overthrows kingdoms. God overthrows our own kingdoms in his time. So one of the things we keep in mind is that as we're going through Isaiah, these messages, these oracles concerning all these different nations of the world at the time, always were given for Judah. That was their purpose. 
Their purpose was to train and teach Judah. Yes, it said much about the nations. Yes, they said much about God's plan for the nations, but they are given to Judah to remind them of one simple thing. Your trust is in Yahweh. Over and over they needed to hear that. We've already seen one king who does not, who did not trust in Yahweh and will come up very soon on another king who does trust in Yahweh. It doesn't go after Assyria and their help and protection. That's the message that underlies all of these. And in the meantime, we get to see all the ways that they and therefore we are tempted not to trust our God and how God responds to that. So this morning, we're in Isaiah 19. It's been a while since we've been in Isaiah, which is why well, I've tried to kind of remind us a little bit of our setting. We're in the middle of these 10 oracles to the nations. Um, some of them have been very long. We'll see next week two of them that are very short. We'll cover three oracles next week, lest you think we're getting bogged down. We've been doing one a week, even with the breaks that we've had. And next week, we'll do three oracles at one time. You'll be in heaven that we transfer, go through three oracles. So there are 10 of these. And then we move into some other oracle-type descriptions of judgment and blessing. And we're heading toward chapter 39, which after chapter 39, everything changes. Chapter 40 begins, and we'll we'll feel like we're in a different world than we have been chapters 1 through 39. But as we progress through these texts, we're constantly reminded of the glory of God, the unchanging nature of God, the sinfulness of man, the hope that man has in their sinfulness, and what God does in response to obedience and disobedience. The message of the scripture in front of us all the time in different ways. Well, today we're going to see a nation, Egypt, that is in the same kind of mess that we are in. And it was written thousands of years ago. So even though 3,000 years have passed, the word today could be written for the United States of America and us, and it fit perfectly. I'm not going to read the whole text this morning. I'm going to read just part of it, and then we'll summarize the rest, maybe read it, depending on how our time goes. But I do want to read the first section together. So if you'll stand with me as I read the first 15 verses of Isaiah chapter 19. And as I'm reading, I want you to look for things like change in subjects and repetition of words. Those are those things that help us mark out what's going on in the text. Isaiah 19. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up and the river will be dry and parched and its canals will become foul and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will, not rot, will rot away. 
There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair and weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what Yahweh of Ost has proposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. Yahweh has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. We're going to go ahead and read it all. Stay with me in verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that Yahweh of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that Yahweh of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to Yahweh because of oppression, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to Yahweh and perform them and Yahweh will strike Egypt striking and healing and they will return to Yahweh and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. When Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time, Yahweh spoke to by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then Yahweh said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered the nakedness of Egypt. 
Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So clearly there are many things to look at and discuss in in this oracle against Egypt. And remember that when we go through the oracles, we're being driven by what the scriptures, when the scripture says oracle, not necessarily when the editorial headings say oracle. Um, So we have this 19 and 20, both part of one oracle. And as you you heard that read, here's the flow. Here's where we're heading. This This is the end of the story at the beginning so we can keep on track. God is dealing with Judah. And in dealing with them, he gives them what he intends to do with Egypt, a rebellious nation. And he is the one that has put them into um, all of the disaster that they're in. And they will fear and shake before them, before him, even fear and shake before Judah. But God is not finished. Because then we see that God intends to have Egypt come and worship him. And he reveals himself to them, and they, they come faithfully, and they worship him. But it's not only Egypt, it's also Assyria, the superpower of the day, and Judah. And they're not only just worshiping Yahweh, but they're all worshiping together. That's a hallelujah moment, right? And then in 20, it's, God is saying, listen, I have plans for Egypt. And, and you can look, look in chapter 19 and, and look at verse 22. And Yahweh will strike Egypt striking and healing. We could take those words and put them over the whole thing this morning. He's striking in chapter 19. He's healing in chapter 19. And then he wants to remind Judah that they still should not put their trust in Egypt, even though he has these grand and wonderful plans for them in that day. They should not trust in Egypt. They must trust in Yahweh. And he said, because here's what's happening in your day. And he's reminding him what's going to happen very soon in their day, exactly in 711 B.C. in chapter 20. So this is the overarching direction that we're going. So go back at the beginning of chapter 19. And in these verses, we are shown three facets of the oracle concerning Egypt. Three facets of the oracle concerning Egypt. And I've divided those up just like you can see in your scripture. The first 15 verses are written as poetry. And then when we get to verse 16, to the end of that chapter and all the way through 20, you see it written as narrative again. It goes and fills the whole line. So that shows us these sections. And you clearly saw the section of blessing at the end of 19 and then a return to a a contemporary scene in chapter 20. So the first facet of the oracle concerning Egypt, Yahweh, the cloud rider, will destroy Egypt with disasters. He will destroy Egypt with disasters. And he will cause three kinds of disasters. Yahweh will cause an internal disaster. He will cause an economic disaster. And he will cause a leadership or wisdom disaster. Look right in your text at verse 19. The important, or chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1. After the or- an oracle concerning Egypt, we read these important words. Behold, Yahweh, or the Lord, capital L. Uh, all caps L-O-R-D, behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. 
Now, we need to remember our biblical theology that there's only one cloud rider, and that is Yahweh. We remember when we saw in Daniel chapter 7 that one came to the ancient of days and, and he was riding on a cloud. We read, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. In Psalm 103 verse 3, Yahweh lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. In Nahum, the third verse of chapter 1, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will, be, will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. One more in the Old Testament, Psalm 68, 32 and 33. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to Yahweh, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. So when we see this metaphor of God riding on a cloud, Yahweh is the only one who does that. But we also see that in the New Testament, do we not? We see that in places like Matthew 24 and 26, where Jesus says in Matthew 24, 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and he's speaking about himself, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Two chapters later, he's before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus, when we read those passages, is saying he is whom? He is Yahweh. The Yahweh who rides on the clouds of the Old Testament, his son is Yahweh as well. So this, and every time we see this phraseology, we see that God is coming in judgment. It's a warning of judgment. And we see that clearly here in Isaiah 19. The the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And what happens with the people? The idols of Egypt will tremble in his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. That parallel phrase, idols tremble, hearts melt within them. They come undone because of the fear of Yahweh. This is a great and powerful nation in the future. It's, It's not the superpower in Isaiah's time that Assyria is, but it's still a player and will yet become that, that superpower And yet Yahweh is still Lord over Egypt as well. And look what he does. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. They will fight against another. And really that's fight against brothers. They will fight against their brothers. uh, And against his neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. So there's total anarchy with everybody hating everyone. And coming against them and fighting them. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied or laid waste. They'll be devastated, the spirit within them. They will will have no strength to do anything. And look at the the next phrase in verse 3. And I will confound their counsel. So lest there's any discussion about what goes on, who's in charge here? Yahweh is in charge. So lest there is any discussion, who's in charge on Tuesday? God is in charge, and our trust is in him. Remember last week when we talked about um, Romans 1, and we talked about that with the transformational power of worship, and we said that all of those sins that are mentioned are a result of men suppressing the truth that they saw in nature, suppressing that truth, and then God gave them over to judgment. 
And oftentimes we hear people say that because of what's going on in the world today, God is judging us. And we need to be clear, because of what's going on in the world today, we know that God has judged us. He's given us over. And I wonder how many times Christians have voted for people who say they should kill babies. I wonder how many times Christians have voted for people who want to say that there are more than just the two genders that God created. I wonder how many times Christians have voted for people who support marriage that the Bible doesn't say is marriage. And if I've stepped on your toes, consider it intentional. God's people need to vote according to what God says in his word. Period. There's no room for this waffling thing anymore. Now, what does that have to do here? They're fighting against each other. I know you really have to imagine what it's like for America to fight against each other and clan against clan and city against city and people group against people group. That happens all the time, doesn't it? And it's increasing every day. And it's increasing in violent ways. It's not just agreeing to disagree and then giving our, the facts behind our opinion and hoping we will sway the people that we're with and then not breaking fellowship with them. It's not that anymore. You're vilified simply because of what you think. And both sides of the aisle do this. So this is what's going on in Egypt, and it's what's going on with us. So if it's going on with us, and the cloud rider did it in Egypt, do you think the cloud rider's doing it here? So our role is to make sure that we understand the scriptures and not fight with our brothers. And not be an enemy. You can have a differing opinion and love the person. Do you know that, that we can still do that? Do you know that's a biblical concept, to disagree with someone and not hate them? We forget this today. So the church has a role in this. We're a constitutional republic that we have the right to vote, so go vote. And then we submit as much as we can to the government that's over us, knowing that God is over the government. And when they violate God's principles, the story changes. And we live in that world. Well, God is moving in Egypt and he's created this chaos, internal disaster among the people. And he says in verse 3 that he will confound their counsel and look at the second half. And they will inquire the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. So the sorcerers, that actually refers to the spirits of dead people. We've already seen this once in chapter 8, verse 19. Do you remember that, where Israel did that? And the call from Isaiah is, to the testimony! I'm sorry. I did not mean to do that to you back there, Ernie. But I'll calm down. <laughs> the call is back to the word of God, to the testimony. God's people should not be doing that. Well, Egypt shouldn't be doing that either, even though they're not yet God's people. But God has confounded their wisdom so that they have to do those things. And that's not that they have to, but they turn there. And he says, I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of the hard master. And the fierce king will rule over them, declares Yahweh, no, declares the Lord God of hosts. So this is the, the language that, that Egypt ruled when they ruled over Israel. And they were hard taskmasters to them. So we'll see this idea a couple of different places that remind us that Egypt used to be the one who would persecute. Egypt was the hard taskmaster, and God has that for them as well. But it's not only an internal disaster that God causes. It is an economic disaster. And in verses 5 through 10, we see the repetition of the body of water, specifically the Nile, but definitely said other ways. Now, the economy of Egypt was tied to the Nile River. 
the majority of their economy is tied there. So the sin of the people caused God to react to them in such a way that he dries up the water. He dries up the river. And he says it in so many different ways that there's like, we know there's like, I mean, we're thirsty just, just reading about it, aren't we? There's like, in this prophecy, there is no water to be found. And it has an economic effect. It has an effect on the fishermen. Those fishermen who um, made their living in the waters, if there's no water, there's no fish. At least there's no live fish. And remember, all the way back in the time when Egypt, or when, when God's people were wandering in the wilderness, remember when they started grumbling? I know you never grumble, but Egypt did grumble. Do you remember that? And one of the things they said was they wanted to go back to Egypt where the fish were not very costly. Because there were so many of them, they were cheap, they were inexpensive. So it was a driving force in their economy. But no one who fishes, they're all weeping, they're all mourning. Also, those people who were involved in the flax and linen and cotton business. The flax needed water to grow. It needed water to be soaked in before it was all dried, dried out to make linen. So the linen industry suffers when the water's not there. The cotton industry suffers because the weavers needed water to be able to do that. And they're suffering. So when the Nile dries up, the people suffer. And look what it says in verse 10. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. So those who are leaders, those who are rich, the wealthy, who employ others, and those who go to work for pay, they're all grieving. They're all crushed. And they're crushed because they are an enemy of God, and God is judging them, and he dries up the Nile. But he moves, not only, it's, he's not finished in this description. It's internal disaster, economic disaster, and also a leadership disaster. Or we might say a wisdom disaster. Look at verse 11. And I want you to just feel the weight of the lack of wisdom in the presence of foolishness. The princes of Zoan, that's a city in the north, are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. You can say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise. Or how can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of the ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? And this is the challenge. Let them tell you that they might know what Yahweh of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Memphis are, are deluded. Memphis is in the south. And those who are cornerstones of her tribes, that is the leaders of the people, have made Egypt stagger. And then it says, verse 14, very clearly, Yahweh has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds. So that they are the princes, the cornerstones, who God is confusing them, mingling all their wisdom up with confusion, and they're staggering as drunken men staggers in his vomit. And 15 is hopeless. And there will be nothing for Egypt, and the implication is to do. Nothing. That head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Remember, that, was, that, that same phrase described Israel in chapter 9. When God works, he hems people in because he will work his will. Now, a lack of wisdom, that, I mean, it's, it's clear over and over and over what wisdom they had. And Egypt was considered a wise nation. When Solomon was, when the wisdom of Solomon was described, it was described in this way, that it eclipsed even, and in the last section, it eclipsed even the wisdom of Egypt. So wisdom was known to be part of Egypt, and now they're falling apart. 
There's nothing left for them. They're hemmed in a corner. All aspects of their lives, the internal relationships they have, the economic uh, stability that they had, and the wisdom in their leadership, God has affected. Now, today, we live in that world, do we not? I mean, we don't have a Nile that's dried up, but we have a stock market that suffers and, and exports and imports that suffer and interest rates that suffer and inflation that rises and unemployment that lies to us with every report. We live in a world with economic uh, um, upheaval. And dare I say, we live in a world where our leaders don't have much wisdom. We're constantly at the hands of people who are making stupid, unwise decisions, to use the scripture's language. God deluded them in Egypt, and God can delude us as well in our nation because we're pursuing things that do not comport with his righteousness. And even though he's a patient God, he is acting and he's moving. So are we the product? Are we living in a world that's just we have people who are unwise in our leadership and it's just going to happen that way? No. It's the deluding influence that God has placed upon us that has us close to staggering as a drunken man in his vomit. And yet you and I are his people. And we're tasked to live in that world, are we not? And the reason we can live in that world is because we know that he is in charge. And if we lose our 401k, if our, if our hope is in that 401k, we're just like Egypt, aren't we? We're mourning over the Nile drying up. If our hope is in our family and not in Christ, then we're mourning because brothers are against brothers and our kids may grow up and not talk to us again. If we're, if we're in the midst of trusting things other than us, we might even, other than God, we might even be trusting in our own wisdom. Now that happens all the time because we have the internet. We're all smart, right? All you got to do is Google something and you can get an answer. And I emphasize an answer. You may not get the answer, but you'll get an answer and people suck that all in and think that they're smart and they sit back behind their computers and they act out of their own wisdom and what they do is demonstrate they have no wisdom. We're not like that. We have wisdom from above, don't we? We have wisdom that is from God and if we don't have enough of it, God says, ask and I'll give you more. We have the truth of the word of God that says God is moving and working and redeeming people and that even, we're going to see in a moment, even nations that he promises to destroy, he's redeeming people out of them. And that's our message. And our message grows brighter and brighter the darker our nation gets. So we have a role in this because God is moving. He's redeeming people that do not yet know him. He is advancing the church and our mission. He is exalting Christ. His spirit is active. And we of all people should be the ones who don't rejoice over all the evil, but charge headlong with righteousness and the truth of the word of God and the message of Jesus Christ. So this is the time that we're just excited toward battle. We've been prepared for this. We've been prepared for the time that God opens up doors for us to reach people that we would have never reached before. Because they're going to come back from the battlefront and they're going to be wounded. And we have the healing bomb because God strikes and he heals. And he's always doing both. But look what else. The second facet. In that day, Yahweh will deliver and restore Egypt. And I, I tried to emphasize that in that days, as we read verses 16 to the end of the chapter, in that day... We've seen before, haven't we? We've even seen other passages that each little section is marked by this phrase. 
Sometimes in that day is talking about the day of Christ's return, the setting up of the new heavens and new earth and the consummation of the kingdom. Sometimes in that day is a future event that's being alluded to. The date's not there, but it's not necessarily that far. And sometimes it's the day of Christ. When Christ comes and God sends him and he's obedient and lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death on the cross, he's raised again, seated at the right hand of the Father, and the scriptures tell us that all who will believe in him will have eternal life. Repent of your sins, believe in Christ, and eternal life is yours with the Holy Spirit guarding the inheritance of the presence of Christ himself on that day. That's an on that day that starts with Christ and ends with Christ. We see the, the, the beginnings of it, the already part, but we may not see all of the not yet. I think what we have here is the already and the not yet. We have these both in here. Let me tell you why. In that day it occurs six times in, in for, between verses 16 and 25. Four of those times, I think they break out into a new section. Two of those times, they're a continuation of the in that day before it. So I think there are four major things that we're seeing here out of these six in that days. First, Egypt will fear Yahweh. Look at verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that Yahweh of hosts shakes over them. So this is very closely tied to the image in verse 15 but we're talking about a future day. We've, Isaiah has changed the future on us here. He has changed the picture for us, but they're still bowing before Yahweh in fear. And they're bowing before like women would be in a battle. And don't be mad at me. I'm not saying women aren't strong, but women are not warriors. Contrary to a popular belief in our country, women are not and should not be warriors. Men are warriors. And so we have here the, the armies are trembling with fear um, before the hand that Yahweh of hosts shakes over them. His strong right arm, his mighty hand, he's shaking it over them and they're fearful. And what else is going on? It's Judah they're fearful of. Look at verse 17. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that Yahweh of hosts has purposed against them. Now that's their perception of their reality. That's what they think is happening. But God is up to something much bigger. God is up to something that is showing his glory and his grace manifest in a people who are enemies of his. So the first thing, Egypt will fear Yahweh. Second in that day, verse 18, Egypt will trust Yahweh. Look at verse 18. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One of those will be called the city of destruction. I have no idea for sure what all that means. I'm being honest with you. And if you read the commentators, every one of them says, well, it could be this and it could be this and it could be this. And most of them go to the next section without saying even their viewpoints on it. But what is clear in this is there are going to be people who are not Jews come and worship God. It's clear. No, no matter what the cities are, I'm not sure what the five cities are. Are they five specific cities? Are they meant to say it's a small portion of Egypt? Is it meant to, for us to understand that there are five major cities and it encapsulates most of Egypt? I'm not sure. And I get even more confused when one of them will be called the city of destruction or some of your versions might have the same as the, the ESV has in the footnote, city of the sun. 
There are strong textual evidences for both of those translations. And if it is the city of the sun, it's referring, referring to a city called Heliopolis, which was the seat of Ra, the sun god. So it was a pagan worship with Ra, the sun god, sun god, being the primary one. So is it saying that four out of those five cities will remain faithful to Yahweh? I'm not really sure if we can understand it today. And if I'd have read somebody that had a convincing argument, I'd tell you who it was and tell you what their argument was, but I didn't read that. But what I do know is this. If you look at that verse, in that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh, allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. Literally the lip of Canaan. And what I think we're supposed to be thinking here is from Genesis chapter 11 when they gather at the Tower of Babel to build up that ziggurat to reach up to God and make a name for themselves, the scripture says that they were all of one lip, all of one language. And God came down and scattered them and made them different languages. And I think we're seeing a reversal of that here. I think we see a reversal of the scattering of the nations as God redeems people from each nation. And whether it means they will speak the language of the Hebrews, the language of the Israelites, actually learn it and speak it every day, or whether it means they begin to speak the language of worship to the Hebrew God, the one true God, I'm not sure. It could be either way. But there's a transformation that's being hinted at here, right? They were enemies, and now they're in allegiance. They had their own culture and language, but now they're uniting with the worshipers of the one true God. So they will begin to trust Yahweh. Thirdly, beginning in verse 19, Egypt will worship Yahweh. And there are three sections of this. Yahweh will hear and deliver Egypt. Yahweh will reveal himself to Egypt. And Yahweh, or Egypt will know and worship Yahweh. So look at verse 19. In that day, that's our third one, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh at its border. So an altar and a pillar. And this is what the Israelites did, right? The Israelites did on a regular basis. When God would work in their midst, they'd set up. You remember the song that you, you learned singing and you always chuckled at the name when you were a child? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Do you know what an Ebenezer is? The Ebenezer is the monument that Jacob raised when he had the dream of the ladder and he raised a monument to him. He raised it to remember that God was his helper. That's what it meant, that God was his helper. So that this is, the way, this is the way God's people acted. They would set up a monument to remember what God had done. And so generations after them would come. So they, they begin to do this. It, it, is, it will be a sign, verse 20, and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to Yahweh because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. The language of salvation here. So when the people cry out to Yahweh, not to the necromancers, not to the spiritist and the sorcerers, but to Yahweh, he will hear them. And there's a reason that he will hear them that we'll get to in a minute. But they cry out and he hears. So I don't want you to be confused here as if there will be a time in the future that we'll rebuild the temple and have sacrifices come again because this language is here. This is the language of Isaiah. This is how he would describe faithful worship because in the old covenant, that's how God said to worship, right? So this is the language he would use. And he's using the language of the people of God, and this is how God said to approach him 
and this is the language that's being used to describe Egypt coming into a worshipful relationship of Yahweh. And he's going to deliver them. He's going to send, be their defender. He's going to send them a savior when they cry out to him because they're oppressed. So there is a physical fulfillment of that, but it's a, it's a spiritual fulfillment as well, isn't it? Or they would not be worshiping. There has to be a spiritual change for someone to worship in what? Spirit and in truth. And so there is a spiritual change that's being told to us here, represented in the, in the physical delivery. Look at verse 21. We move into Yahweh revealing himself, and this is key. And Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offerings and will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. So I want you to notice the beauty of this. When God orchestrated the plagues against Egypt, did, what was the purpose of those plagues? The purpose of those plagues is that Egypt would know Yahweh. He says it over and over. But did Egypt ever know Yahweh at that time? They rejected Yahweh. So look at this. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, just like he did in the ten plagues, and the Egyptians will know the Yahweh in that day. That's unlike they've known before. I get my headset back, Mike, next week, because we've had parts we need. Maybe I'll quit slapping the microphone and, and um, giving Ernie heart fits back there and everybody who listens. So, so there's a difference. How do people know, know God? He reveals himself to them, and he reveals himself to him in a specific, salvific way. The Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father, and the Son can reveal himself to whoever, and reveal God to whoever he wants. Matthew chapter 11. So this is the prerogative of God. There is a revelation of God in, cre- in creation that men if in their sinfulness suppress, but there's also a spiritual revelation that in regeneration, God grants us a new heart. And that new heart has the ability, it's designed to worship the God who is revealing himself to us. And that's the picture of regeneration right here in the Old Testament. There's something different happening now with the Egyptians than there was happening in the Ten Plagues because now there are Egyptians that are coming to faith and God is sending a Savior for them and they are becoming worshipers of him. Look at verse, at the end of uh, verse 21, or verse 22. And Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking and healing. So this is that picture that I said at the beginning. The first 15 verses is all striking. Then we move from the striking to the healing. And I, I, I propose to you that this is the way every person comes, in, comes to faith. Every person comes to faith, God strikes them and convicts them over their sin. And if they're not repentant, then they could have other judgments come their way. But God is long-suffering so that it would lead us to repentance. And there will come a day that Christ returns or God takes them home that that offer of repentance will not still be there and God will work according to his character and carry out the promises of the covenant. He strikes and he heals. And when he strikes someone like Egypt, he's striking them so that they would be healed because he reveals and they respond. They submit themselves to him and they worship. So he strikes Egypt, striking and healing Verse 22, and they will return to Yahweh, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. So this is what the people of God do. We do not go to governments and and all the ways that we can have trust in the world. We don't go there. 
We go to Yahweh. We go to Christ himself, and we submit our requests to him. When we're worried in the world, when we're stressed about something, what does Paul tell us to do in Philippians? He tells us to worry about nothing, but in all things, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present our requests to God. And when we do that, we're not worrying. We're letting him know. Now, I'm telling you, this is a day where you can start worrying, isn't it? You can start worrying about another wild decision or wild statement that's made by people as high as office as you can get in the United States. And you, you can start worrying about that. Where is this leading? Where is this going? What kind of world is it for my kids? But God says, pray and be thankful. And you start listing those things that you have to be thankful about, and guess what happens? You're not worrying anymore. Your heart and your mind both are being guarded by Christ Jesus. That's the picture even here. They are moving toward Yahweh and because that's who their God is now. Well, look at the fourth section in the end that day. Egypt, Assyria, and Judah will all worship Yahweh together. This is where the miracle gets even greater. This is where I think we move to the... the consummation of the kingdom and the new heavens and new earth like we read about in Revelation where there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people who are gathered together worshiping Yahweh. This is where we're moving from the already, which everything else has been the already. This is what Christ accomplished on the cross and it's happening every day, isn't it? People are coming to faith in Christ from all nations and tribes and families and backgrounds and economic crises and, and deep sinful habits. and They're coming across into Christ because he's revealed himself with the, with the regenerative power that those people respond to him in. But now, look at verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. No, I, I went too far, didn't I? 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. <laughs> so where there would normally be enmity, now there's peace. There doesn't have to be a road built between these two countries. We understand that, right? This is the way to say they're unified. They're unified around one lip. They're unified around one God. They're unified around one worship of the one true God. And this, that brings peace among them, both Egypt and Assyria. That's a miracle enough, isn't it? But just in case we don't have enough miracle, God gives us another one. Look at verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. Not the third in, in importance, the third in number. A blessing in the midst of the earth. Now, what's that remind you of? God's people gathered people, and God promised Abraham that it's through his seed that all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so now this is a picture of that happening between these countries that would have been at enmity. Whom the Lord, that is Yahweh of hosts, has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. Now, who, who are God's people in the Old Testament? Israel. And Assyria, the work of my hands. That's Israel most of the time. And Israel, my inheritance. Now they're all wrapped up as God's people. This is what the Old Testament teaches us from Genesis chapter 3. That there would be, a, there would be the battle of the seeds. And Abraham, through his seed, would be all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
And we know that in the New Testament, and I'm just, I'm summarizing this because we talk about this progression so often, I don't want to take the time to put all the flesh on it, but when we get into the New Testament, who is the seed that was talked about? According to Paul in Galatians, the seed in Genesis was a single seed, and that seed is Christ himself. He is the one who Genesis chapter 3 tells us is in the battle with Satan, where one gets, one's nipped at the heel and the other has his head crushed. Well, Jesus is the seed who crushes the head of the enemy. And all of us who are united to Christ in repentance and faith, all of us who have him and are united with him, we are the true seed. We are are, are part of the children of Abraham. We are the true children of Abraham. And salvation is ours because God saves the same way always, Old Testament and New Testament. And all of that salvation, if that's something you're outside of, if you've never taken your uh, stock of your life, and seeing the revelation of God as something that is drawing you in and that you repent of your own sins and put your faith and trust in Christ, which means walking away from everything that you ever put faith and trust in ultimately. It doesn't mean you don't have a life anymore. It doesn't mean your life all of a sudden is just peachy keen with no troubles. It just means that your eternity is settled because it's finished. The work Christ did is finished on the cross and all who are connected with him in union with him by repentance and faith are saved and the Holy Spirit is is holding on to all of that inheritance to give to us on that day. We're seeing it and tasting it now, but on that day, we worship with the Assyrians. We worship with the Egyptians. We worship with Judah. We worship with every tribe and tongue and people and nation for eternity because Christ came and did what he was supposed to do. And that's ours. That's for us. Repent today. Turn away from your sins because your sins will not produce that kind of blessing. They will produce judgment and that is it. And just in case, Judah was tempted to turn their trusting back to Egypt just in case that was going to happen. Because remember, Egypt is, Egypt is their first and most ancient nemesis. And God has said, I'm going I'm to just destroy by their own sinful actions their country, but I'm going to redeem some out of them just in case Israel think, well, if that's going to happen in the future, maybe we should go ahead and put our trust in them. Chapter 20 comes along. Now we move to a current event in Israel's day, an event that happens. We, we, we don't have it documented in the scriptures, but we do have it documented in historical archaeological findings, a battle that happened and, and that this Chapter 20, verse 1 summarizes where Ashdod and Egypt, they've had some false alliances with each other, and Egypt is tired of it. Or Assyria is um, Sargon, the king's, I'm saying the wrong name. Assyria is tired of it, and Assyria comes to deal with Ashdod. And that's the setting that we're told right in verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief and that year was 711 B.C., who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, so this is very close, this is right in Isaiah's day, at that time, Yahweh spoke to Isaiah by the son of Amos, saying, or by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So this is an acted out um, prophecy. 
We see these several times in Scripture, but this is an acted-out prophecy. When it says naked and barefoot, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was completely naked. There's every chance that he had the, the inner garment still on. The, the point is to show us that the sackcloth is off. The prophet is always mourning and weeping over the messages of condemnation that he has to give. It's the mark of the dress of a prophet. And so the Lord says, take that off. Go from mourning to humiliation. That's the picture. Go from mourning to humiliation. I'm not saying he couldn't have been completely naked for three years in a row, but I think more likely he had his undergarment on, took the sackcloth off, and that would have still been humiliating. It would have not been normal to walk out into public like that. Whether he did, that's all he wore for three years straight, or every time he went in public, that's what he did. I, I don't know. That's not the purpose, is it? He moved from mourning over sin to being humiliated because he is now the object lesson. Because Egypt and Cush, that's what's going to happen to them. Look at the text. Verse 4, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. So his acted out prophecy was going to be carried out against Egypt and Cush. And that's what the Lord promised to do. And so the message is always to Judah. Whether these other nations hear about it or not, we don't know. But it's always to Judah. So look how it turns to Judah. Verse 5. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. Literally their glory. And the inhabitants of this coastland. You notice how he starts talking about his people now? Remember, he's done this before. He doesn't call them his people or my people or Israel. He just refers to them in a neutral way. Because if they put their trust in these nations, they're acting against his will and they're acting unwisely. So now they're the inhabitants of this coastland. And they will say in that day, behold, this is what happened to those in whom we had hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. How? And we, how shall we escape? The message is always to them. I may be doing great things with Egypt. I may be doing great things in the future. But my message to you is do not trust in men. Trust in me. And that's the message that we take out of this as well. We've seen it before and we'll see it again. But we do not trust in men. And the reason I think we get it over and over and over is because our temptation is to trust in men. And to trust in things and portfolios and our wants and our desires and our own wisdom and all of that. That's our bent. And we would say, no, I trust in God. And then when we don't have money to buy food, we're not trusting in God anymore. When our 401k is gone, we're weeping in a way that reveals all our hope was in that. What are we going to do now? I'm not going to be able to retire. When our trust is in our children and God takes one home and we cannot recover. I'm not talking about not grieving. I'm talking about hating God because of that. It's, it, it's, a, it can just, it's this stone that keeps rolling downhill. If we're regarding our sin instead of his righteousness, we start turning into that because that's who we worship. That's the message to Judah. It's the message to us. And hallelujah. Jesus has come. And hallelujah again, he's coming again. And the next world will not be like this world. So we get the chance to practice now and bring about all kinds of change should God see fit to do so. 
and see all kinds of people come to faith in him and see maybe a bunch of Christians who finally start acting like the scriptures say of how we interact with our, with our government and the people in our land, maybe God would give us revival. What a glorious thing that would be if through all the mess, God's people rise up and say, Christ is king. And we are granted revival right in the midst of the darkness. May it be so. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the reversals that you show, even in this, that no matter how much you have come against Egypt, they are still those who, when you reveal yourself to them, they come to you, they trust you, their allegiance is to you, they worship you, and they're part of your um, eternal kingdom of worshipers. And we pray, Father, first of all, thankfulness that you have redeemed us and you have brought us into that kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that Our salvation was not of us when we started, and it's not of us as we live that Christ um, loses none that you have given him. We praise you, Father, that our salvation is secure, our inheritance is, is secure, and we pray, Father, that all the ways that you give us that picture remind us, remind us of our future hope. So, Lord, now as we turn our hearts and minds to celebrating the Lord's Supper together, we ask you to keep all of that in mind. For when we remember Christ, we are remembering his sacrifice and what it has done. And we are feeding on those truths. We are feeding on those truths. We are looking forward to his next coming, his second coming with joy and expectation and remembering his sacrifice and the way it equips us to live in a way that, that um, pleases you is the food that we have this morning. It is Christ himself. So we pray, Father, as we partake of this in community, that you would keep your son at the tip of our focus and that that focus would make a difference in our daily life. So feed us this morning through this this gift that you have given us of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.